Amen. All right. I'm really glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Last week was week number two of our Advent sermon series. Remember here at First Baptist, we typically talk about Advent as the anticipation of our celebration of the incarnation. Two big features of Advent, though, I've tried to point out to you this year to really focus some attention on. Number one, Advent is about identifying with the posture of expectation that marked God's people for thousands of years before the coming of the Messiah. They were anticipating this long-awaited promised deliverer. So we want to identify with those Old Testament saints in that. Secondly, Advent is also about joining saints of old in the posture of anticipation and expectation as we, as believers in Jesus, as we wait for the promised return of the Messiah, that he is coming back. And so we long for that day. Advent helps us do both of those things. Our sermon series this year, somewhat inspired by Sally Lloyd-Jones's statement in the Jesus Storybook Bible when she says, every story whispers his name. That is, every story in the Bible whispers the name of Jesus. So we've been looking at stories in Genesis to see how they whisper the name of Jesus. That helps us live in this posture of anticipation, expectation. Well, last week we looked at a story that was super familiar to us, but has somehow become radically rebranded away from a shocking, dark episode about sin and judgment a story of worldwide corruption that led to worldwide death as a result. That story has been rebranded into some cutesy, adorable cartoon, a little boat full of animals with a giraffe's neck sticking out of a window. We tried to see that in the story of Noah, the flood, and the ark, we saw that sin was rampant, that a warning was given, that a rescue was provided, and that indeed a family was rescued. Sin was rampant, and it still is. We learned that the flood didn't fix the problem. In fact, the flood showed us the depth of depravity. And the flood pointed us to the ultimate solution. That is the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his victorious resurrection. We saw that a warning was given. And we still want to give that warning. That holy God will punish sinful man. In fact, there is a judgment that is greater than the flood coming upon those who live in their sin. Who deny the Lord Jesus Christ and go on their way. Warning was given, holy God will punish sinful man. Third, a rescue was provided. And the rescue that was provided in Christ is better than that boat. Jesus came to us. Jesus lived a life that we could not live in perfect obedience to the Father. Jesus died the death that we deserve as the substitute for our sins. He died in the cross, on the cross for us. And they buried him in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death and hell. And he offers us, he offers to us salvation by grace as a gift that we receive by faith. And so I invited you then, and I will invite you now. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. He's the only one who can save you. And we saw, finally, that our family was rescued. We learned that God doesn't just save individuals. He doesn't just save individuals through his death, burial, and resurrection. Rather, he brings those individuals together in the community of faith, the family of God, the local church. We need the local church. In fact, we were talking about it just, just a little while ago in Sunday school about how we know people who don't have a family um, to celebrate Christmas with in just a couple weeks. They don't know what they'll do Christmas Day. Uh, they're not looking forward to dinner with so-and-so or opening presents with such-and-such. They find themselves all alone. So we'll gather together as the family of God that day so that if you don't have another family, you have a family here. 
It's important that we are together on the Lord's Day. It's important that we are together on Christmas Day that is the Lord's Day so that we can be together as the family of God. A family was rescued. We need the church. Now, this week, we're going to cover a great deal of ground in Genesis. We're going we're to work all the way from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to look at the sometimes surprising story of Abraham and his son Isaac. This story, of all the stories in the Bible, has a special place in my life. Uh, when I was a young man, God used this story uh, to bring me uh, to himself and call me to ministry. Um, this is the story that God used to show me that this is what he wanted me to do with my life, uh, to preach his word and serve his people. And so I'm thankful to be able to preach it today. Maybe, just maybe, he'll do the same thing with it in your life today. Um, so even as I preach this, I'm thinking, who's next? Who's the next one that God will use this story um, to call to himself, maybe in salvation? He did that long before he called me to ministry. Um, but maybe God will use this story uh, to call you to serve him in some, in some unique way. As we look at Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 22 today, we're going to see four things. This is good preacher stuff right here. This just fell together, and then Pastor Dylan helped me put the finishing touch on it. The magnificent promise, the miraculous pregnancy, the mysterious prescription, and the merciful provision. That's like A-plus Baptist stuff right there. Magnificent promise, miraculous pregnancy, mysterious prescription, and merciful provision. Let's pray together before we dive into the text. Oh, Father in heaven. We're thankful for how you are allowing us to hear the whispered name of Jesus over the last few weeks from a number of different places in Genesis. And we pray that as we study this story today, that you will continue to help us hear the name of Jesus as we consider this promised son who laid down his life, was willing to lay down his life. And when we hear about the sacrifice that you provided in his place, remind us of the things you've already taught us in your word. Open our eyes to all that you want us to see today in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right, so let's consider this magnificent promise. Look at it in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That's the start of this magnificent promise. And what is interesting to me is that this promise is repeated over and over, over and over in the life of Abraham. Does God reiterate his promise to him? In fact, look, in the very next chapter, in chapter 13, starting in verse 14, we see it again. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, <coughs> then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Now, listen, if we were studying Genesis expositionally like we usually study the Bible here, if we were going through this kind of verse by verse, thought by thought, there would be so much. We would slow down. We would notice a whole bunch of stuff in just these two sections, but that's not the way we're doing it today. And so I want to draw your attention to this one thing from these two passages, one thing. God makes big-time promises to Abraham here. 
God makes big-time promises to him. He says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you so many descendants, you won't be able to count them. God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And through your family, the entire world will be blessed. So what do we learn here? We learn here, number one, that God had a plan. God had a plan for the whole world. That's number two. It's a global plan. God had a plan. God's plan was global. And number three, that plan is a long arc. You see, this this plan is not going to be delivered overnight. This is not something that Abraham is going to go through the drive-thru and and get on his way to work. This is a promise that is going to be delivered over a really long arc of human history. But God is going to be faithful to his promises. This arc is so long that Abraham himself won't be around to see it when it is fulfilled. So listen here for the whisper of Jesus' name. God promises Abraham that he will bless the whole world through his seed. Through the seed of Abraham, the entire world will be blessed. Now this concept of blessing the world through the seed of Abraham takes us back to the very first week of Advent when we learned the very first gospel. When we considered the very first gospel back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you remember it. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is that promise of a seed from the woman who would come and destroy the snake. We told, I told you that that seed is Jesus. Well, here there's a promise of a seed, the seed of Abraham, that is also going to lead to the fulfillment of that promise, and that seed ultimately is Jesus. In fact, that's what Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he, is, he does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. And then Paul says plainly, in case you didn't understand, that is Christ. That is Christ. The promise is fulfilled. The promise given to Abraham back here in chapter 12 and 13, the promise is fulfilled in Christ. These are big time promises, right? That will change the world forever. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Abraham doesn't have any kids. How in the world is God going to bless the whole world through his descendants if he's 75, 90 years old and he doesn't have any children? That's a big-time problem. In fact, Edmund Clowney said this. He said, as Abram looked up at the stars, these promises were far from fulfillment. God had promised him land, but he was still a nomad in the land that was to be his. God had promised to make him a great nation, but his wife Sarai was still barren, and her years of childbearing were, were well past. And Abraham acknowledges this. Abraham gives voice to this. Remember, he's an old man. Even when this story started, at the very beginning, he was 75 years old when it started. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, it says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is to be my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed God, he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, I can't read that last bit, verse 6, and not make a note about Abraham's obedience of faith. 
We cannot run through this without pointing out that Abraham believed God and he believed God and God credited that to him as righteousness. And then Abraham demonstrated his faith in God through his obedience. Abraham did what was the uncomfortable thing because the Lord told him to do it. That's what faith looks like. That's what faith looks like. It looks like doing what God says even when it's difficult. It's what It looks like doing what God says even when it seems counterintuitive. So what's that look like for you right now? What does bold faith look like for you like right now? Is it an answer to a call to the mission field? To say, I'm going to quit this job and the American dream that I've got here, and I'm going to plant myself in the midst of a dark place with the light of the gospel and perhaps give my life there telling people about Jesus. Maybe that's what radical faith and radical obedience looks like in your life right now. Maybe it's a call to ministry. Maybe it's a call to preach the gospel here in America, to raise up people to go to the nations and preach the gospel there. Maybe it looks like some particular service here in this local church that you would say, I don't know, I don't know if I'm up for this, but the Lord is clearly calling me to it, so here we go. Maybe it looks like some call to some radically generous giving here at the end of the year. Maybe God is calling you to give big to Lottie Moon or to the local church or to some other ministry that is worthy of such giving. When we were talking about this this week, Pastor Dylan said we've got to be careful to stop idolizing ease and comfort and rather lean in to trusting God and obeying him even when it doesn't seem to make sense. That's what faith looks like. It looks like doing what he says because you trust him. Because you trust him. So we saw this magnificent promise and then we see the problem is that there are no kids and so now we come to the miraculous pregnancy. Here's the solution to the problem. Old folks are going to have a kid. Really old folks. Really old folks. Look what it says in Genesis 17. It says, now when Abram was 99 years old. uh, We've got a couple people at First Baptist Church that are 99 years old or older. I don't know if they're here today. uh, But 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Mark that down. Ninety-nine years old, you'll be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Anybody want to take a guess of what the name Abraham literally means? It means the father of a multitude. I'm changing your name, 99-year-old dude, to father of a multitude. 99-year-old man. For I have made you the father of a multitude, God says. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. If you read on uh, down to verse 15, you'll see this in chapter 17. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Mark that down. Circle it. He laughed and said in his heart, 
Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? That doesn't happen, folks. It it didn't happen back then. It doesn't happen today. And yet God's going to make it happen. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That's another story for another day. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Anybody want to take a guess what that means? Laughter. It means son of laughter. You name him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But, zoom in at verse 21. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he finished talking to him, God went up from Abraham. Now that whole business about Ishmael, that's a side note for another day. Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands. Instead of waiting on the Lord to deliver on his promise, that snake snuck in, caused a mess, convinced them to do it their own way, and that mess is still raging on today in the conflict between Isaac and Ishmael. Um, We'll talk about that another day. But can you imagine this? 90 years old woman, 99 years old man, getting a news that you're going to have a child. But like everything else in this story, it's repeated for emphasis. It's so great, so hard to believe that it has to be repeated over and again. Look at Genesis 18, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. We already were introduced to that place. While he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Skip down to verse 9. It says, then they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I've become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Look at verse 14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And so she said, And he said, no, you did laugh. So God tells this old couple to expect a child in their old age, right? This is an almost unbelievable promise. It seems too good to be true, and it is impossible by normal standards. But God delivers them a son. God gives them a son. He is the son of the promise. He is Isaac, the true heir of the covenant. I want you to recognize that only God could do this. Only God could do this. Only God could give a child to this old couple. And I want you to recognize also that oftentimes, miracles happen slowly. Miracles happen slowly. The plan of God unfolds oftentimes at a snail's pace, right? God called Abraham to follow him when he was 75 years old. 75 years old. He made the promise that he would be the father of a great nation when he was 75 years old. And now he's 99 years old. This hasn't happened yet. Yet God had made the promise and Abraham trusted and he waited. Friends, we hear oftentimes the promise of God. God gives his word to us and yet we are called to wait. We are called to trust him. 
We are called to recognize that the fulfillment of the promise doesn't happen the same day. But the Lord fulfills all of his promises. Even, even though this birth of Isaac happens by natural means, it ha- happens by human procreation, it's a miracle, right? But that miraculous pregnancy is pointing us to an even greater miraculous pregnancy. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says, God promises another son to a lady who doesn't even have a husband. Who doesn't even have a husband, and yet God provides. Listen to the whisper of the name of Jesus here. A promised son is given in a way that no human could accomplish. A promised son is given in a way that no human could accomplish. If that doesn't whisper about Jesus, I don't know what does. Look at chapter 21. Look at the fulfillment of this promise. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a child, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Edmund Clowney said, in the fullness of time, God's promised son was born. When the angel announced the wonderful birth to Mary, she did not laugh, but whispered in amazement, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Luke chapter 1. The answer she received was the same one God had given to Sarah. No word is impossible with God. Do you see how the miraculous pregnancy is a whisper of the Lord Jesus Christ? But then there's this mysterious prescription. It's a happy day. The promised son has been born. It's a day full of laughter and joy for Abraham and Sarah. And then everything comes to a screeching halt 13-ish years later. After giving Abraham the desire of his heart, In the most amazing way, God does the most unexpected thing. God does the most unexpected thing with Abraham. He comes to him and speaks to him, and he says, I want you to take that son, that promised son, the one you love, the one I gave to you, the one you had waited for, I want you to take him up to a mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him there to me. Kill him there in my presence. Look at it in chapter 22. This is the craziest thing. It's a mysterious prescription. It says, now it came about after these things, Genesis 22, 1, that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you about. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. What in the world is the Lord up to here, right? What in the world is going on? Isaac is the son of the promise. God has said it is through Isaac that he would bless the world and establish his covenant for generations to come. How in the world could God fulfill his promise if the boy is dead? What is the Lord up to? Well, the text says he's testing Abraham. This is a serious test. If you've waited your entire life, you finally have a son of your own, the son of the promise that God had told you about and promised to you. What a test then to take him up the mountain and sacrifice him unto the Lord. Edmund Clowney said, no more fiery crucible for faith can be imagined than this. The cost to Abraham was everything. And then he raises this question, did the command of God 
destroyed the promise of God? What in the world is the Lord up to here? He had made promises. He had made promises to bless the whole world through this line, through this seed. He had made promises to extend his covenant through the seed of Isaac. And yet he tells Abraham to take him up the mountain and kill him there. And look what Abraham does, verse, verse 3 of chapter 22. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Stop reading right there. Can you believe that? What in the world is going on? This is such a mysterious prescription. Why in the world would God command Abraham to slay the son of the promise? And why in the world would Abraham obey that command? Well, he obeyed that command because he trusted the Lord. He obeyed because he believed. He believed God would fulfill his promises. In fact, the author of Hebrews gives us some insight into what was going on in Abraham's mind. Why Abraham was so willing to stretch out his hand to plunge it into the boy with the knife, he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, by faith, right, in believing, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Verse 19, he, that is Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a tithe. In other words, the author of Hebrews says, this whole thing that Abraham was doing is a demonstration of his faith. He really trusts the Lord. In fact, he trusts the Lord so much that he reckons in his mind, God has made promises. God will fulfill his promises. God has commanded me to slay the boy. I will slay him and God will raise him back from the dead. So the author of Hebrews, divinely inspired by the spirit, tells us what's going on in Abraham's head. He's right about that. This is real faith. Real faith on display. Abraham believes God and he obeys in faith. He passes the test. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Listen to the whisper of Jesus in this part of the story. Listen to the whisper of Jesus when the son carries the wood up the hill. While the father carries the knife and the fire. Think about Jesus carrying the cross up the hill to Golgotha. Think about the son questioning the father. Hey, dad, what's going on here? We got all the stuff for the sacrifice, but where's the lamb? Does that whisper about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Oh, father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Think about the whisper of that boy who is probably 13-ish years old, Isaac 13-ish years old, 
Abraham 113-ish years old? And somehow that old man gets that boy on an altar, bound, ready to be sacrificed? I think there is at least some implication that he was submissive to his father. That Abraham, that, that Isaac trusted his father Abraham. Listen for the whisper that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Listen to the whisper of justification by faith. Justification by faith on display here. Well, that sure is a mysterious prescription that God will call Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But then there's a merciful provision. Look at it in Genesis 22, verse 11. He's got his arms stretched out, ready to slay the boy. But, verse 11 starts with but. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. He offered the ram in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your only son, your son, your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We call this a merciful provision, as Pastor Dylan said, because bringing someone from relief, bringing someone relief from something unpleasant. It points to the kindness and compassion of the Lord to provide a substitute, even though Abraham trusted the Lord enough to bring his son to the mountain to follow his instructions and sacrifice him. Have you ever heard people talk about Jehovah Jireh? You ever heard that language tossed around in conversations? Jehovah Jireh? That comes from this story. It means the God who provides. God himself will provide. It comes right from this story. God indeed provides. And he provides in a way better than a ram caught in a thicket. Friends, John the Baptist was right when he looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the seed of Abraham. It is the Lord Jesus Christ in whom all the nations of earth are blessed. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the sacrifice in our place. He is the one who died for us, and he is the one who who rose again. So when we read in chapter 22 about this substitute sacrifice who would die in the place of the son, we think about the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place, who suffered for our salvation. So in this story, in this story from Genesis 12 to 22, we have seen the magnificent promise and that whispers about Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who has come that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. He is the long-awaited Messiah who is Savior of the world. This magnificent promise is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We've also seen a miraculous pregnancy. This Christ was born of a virgin. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. That's a miraculous pregnancy for a purpose, and that purpose is redemption. But there's a mysterious prescription, right? 
Do we, do we have the same kind of, oh, what is going on as we see Jesus betrayed, as we see Jesus arrested, as we see Jesus tried and convicted, as we see Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, as we see him beaten and scourged and mocked? Are we like, what is going on here? How could this possibly fit with the plan? As we see Jesus crucified, nailed to the cross, are we saying, what, what in the world is going on? How is this the way the world is saved? It's a mysterious prescription that the Son of God would die on a cross. But it is the only way. It is the only way for sinful man to be reconciled to holy God. And it is a merciful provision. The Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection is a merciful provision. Jesus Christ is the lamb that the Lord has provided. That whole story of the ram caught in the thicket is a shadow of Christ. That whole story of sacrifice is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the substitute who died in our place. He's the one who died for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And so in a minute, we're going to sing together, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold, the Lamb of God whose name is whispered in every story in the Old Testament. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for the magnificent promise on display in Genesis and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the miraculous pregnancy on display in Genesis and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the mysterious prescription on display in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and the merciful provision that is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb who takes away our sins. Lord, help us to see this. Help us to delight in it. Help us to proclaim it to the ends of the earth, this good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We pray for men and women and boys and girls in our midst who are lost, dead in their trespasses and sins, separated from you because of their sin. We pray that you will come to them as you did to us. Open their eyes to your holiness. Open their eyes to their sinfulness. Teach them that the wages of sin is death. Oh, and teach them that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let them see Christ on the cross in their place. Give them faith to trust completely in him. Give them repentance to turn away from sin. and Save them by your grace. Save them for your, your own glory and for their good, but for your glory. I pray that you'll do this in Jesus' name.